Welcome to Evoking the Sublime. Whatever you are doing, whatever you are thinking about, I want you to stop for one moment. Imagine that you are now living in the future. Streets are free of people. Businesses that were once flourishing began to fall apart, empty of patrons. Humanity is in dire straits. You know of the impending threat as each person in your life worries that today will be their inevitable death. The time of living outside has come to an end. The future was once promising to the world, full of opportunity and excitement. Now, it reeks of danger and of punishment. You decide that you have had enough of living indoors. You miss the feel of a cool breeze brushing upon your skin, standing your hairs on end. You miss the warmth of the sun and the smell of blooming flowers. You open your door and step outside. You take another step and another. Your fear begins to dissipate with each separating step, instilling you with confidence. You start to sprint down an abandoned street, feeling liberated. You shout with glee, informing the inhabitants of your town of your jubilance. You begin to hear a low rumble. Within a split second, the ground cracks in front of you. The power of the crack sends you sprawling backwards, landing on your back. A hole forms in the crack, and out emerges a giant insect-like creature. It's a Vec. You think to yourself, you've been warned of these creatures, but had never seen a live one this close. A wave of absolute panic rushes through your helpless body as you lay there watching the creature fully emerge from the earth. It regards you with multiple eyes and begins to skitter over to you. It towers over you as it is as large as a house. Its mandibles rend together and clack, looking forward to feasting on your flesh. Its eyes widen as it focuses on you. Acid drips from its maw scorching and eating the earth below it. You know it is about to descend on you. You wish you had listened to and heeded the warnings of the news and your family. Going outside only to be killed? You close your eyes and wait for your life to end at the jaws of this gargantuan creature. Suddenly, you hear a loud thump and the piercing scream of the Vec monster. The sound of legs quickly scattering across the ground fills your ears. You open your eyelids just enough to peek, and you see the Vec being forcefully pulled away. A large cable with what appears to be a javelin 
is hooked inside of the foul creature. You see an equally large mech creature pull the Vec closer towards it. Another mech emerges with a large cannon attached to its back. It fires the cannon, launching a projectile towards the imprisoned creature. It lands atop the back of the monster and explodes. The creature lets out one final scream before collapsing lifeless. You run as fast as you can back to your house. You make it there swiftly, closing the door behind you and locking it. You let yourself slump against the door as you pant heavily in fear and exhaustion. The sound of more explosives is audible through the cracks of your home. You sit there, not moving, until the sound fades and disappears. This is the reality faced by humanity in Subset Games' newest experience, Into the Breach, a turn-based strategy game the player controls three mechs that travel from island to island looking to eradicate the Vec threat and bring peace. The player will utilize a plethora of strategies as each mech has unique weapons, armor, and abilities across nine teams. The enemies telegraph their moves, causing the player to have to methodically plan each turn out with pinpoint accuracy. Into the Breach draws some similarities to chess, but instead of wanting to destroy and conquer your opponent, often the player must maintain position and play a defensive game in order to complete an objective. Ever since I have picked up a controller, I have been drawn to strategy games. There has always been something appealing to me about having to plan my next move and attempting to surmise what my opponent will do. Often, these games will initially frustrate me as I have to figure out how to best overcome my opponent. Into the Breach was no different, but it took the strategy a step further. It challenged me in ways that typical strategy games hadn't yet. It caused me to think about strategies I had never used before in other games. With many unique characters and abilities, I had to think even deeper before I figured out how to best use them. Into the Breach was incredibly addicting, and it had a firm grip on me for the better part of a month. This led me to start asking questions about who the creators were and what their track record was. What was their motivation behind creating a game that somehow employed more strategy than previously seen in a turn-based strategy game? Was there some influence from some predecessors? It all started with Justin and Matthew, who expanded upon their previous game's successes, which was FTL, or Faster Than Light. They began to look at grid-based tactical models, drawing some inspiration from XCOM Enemy Unknown. After selecting the mechanics they wanted to use, they sought some inspiration for differentiation of the many games that came before Into the Breach. After watching some films, namely Pacific Rim and Man of Steel, they were inspired to make the consequences of improperly defending the city the actual destruction of the city's structures with collateral damage 
carrying repercussions throughout the entire game. Subset used the large mech versus large creature trope, with environments being visually and physically impacted by the battles between the two. They wanted to further emphasize the need for the structures to stand by, including power nodes inside the buildings which power the mechs that the player controls. The inclusion of the power nodes created a difficult plight when it comes to strategy and decision making. Justin and Matthew took it even one step further, using the story to convey to the players that people were inside of these structures, and if they were lost, those people died forever in-game. The creators sought to make the battle shorter by using a turn counter. They made the feeling even more frantic by including the Vex movements and actions. One particularly invigorating aspect of their creation of Into the Breach is that they took the time to purposefully prompt the player to devise new strategies not previously thought of in order to conquer a challenge, and then use those new strategies further on in the game. This comes from all of the unique units and characters that reside inside of the mech units. Into the Breach was put into development in mid-2015. The success of FTL allowed them to proceed with their new game idea. The game was not announced till 2017, when it was stated to be released for all OSs. At the time of this announcement, Subset Games still had plenty of work to do on the game, as they only had a bare-bones version and they wanted to create it at their own pace. After they developed more of the game and felt comfortable about their progress, they set the date for February 27, 2018. Besides Justin and Matthew, Chris Avalone worked on the story of the game, and Ben Prunty composed and arranged all of the music. Other personnel included Polina Hristova to assist Justin in art assets, Isla Shanel for user testing and community management, and Power Up Audio for additional audio work. With the music, Justin and Ben sought to use it in a way that was different than how the genre typically used music. This actually created a unique contrast that added to the game, as the music was never at the forefront of the gameplay. One recurring motif throughout the music tracks was the use of guitar layered on top of the created tracks. Next, I will be accompanied by Justin Ma, one of the creators of Into the Breach, as I interview him and ask some questions regarding this wonderful game. Please be advised that there will be some spoilers in this interview. Enjoy. Hello, listeners. This is uh, Shay here at Evoking the Sublime podcast. Um, this is the second official episode of the podcast. I'm really excited. Uh, we have a great episode today. We are going to be talking with Subset Games' Justin Ma, um, and today we're actually going to be talking about the game called Into the Breach. It was a wonderful game that just released this year. Um, it's very, very exciting. So I'm very excited to uh, talk with Justin today. How you doing, Justin? I'm great. Uh, hey, everybody. <laughs> uh, that's 
that's the infamous or wonderful Justin. How are you on a word? Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm, I'm really excited to delve into this game. So let's just, uh, get right into it. Um, and just get into some of the nitty gritty here. So one of the first questions I had for you, uh, Justin is when I've played strategy games in the past, it has often felt to me that the sprites or characters were sort of just pasted into these rendered worlds and levels of the game. So what makes Into the Breach so unique is that the mechs and the vec are fully integrated into the world, so much so that if the player punches or bombs one next to a mountain, for example, that mountain can topple. And that was, that was a really cool experience for me to kind of have in a strategy game. So can you tell me a little bit more about what went into making that decision specifically? Uh, yeah, I mean, the core concept with this game, when Matt and I uh, started working on it, was to try and make a counterpoint to a lot of media that uh, shows super heroic people like Superman or whoever uh, fighting in the city. Uh, successfully winning, but half the city gets destroyed, and no one seems to really care that probably millions of people have died. Um, so from the get-go, we wanted it to feel like um, you, you know, you had to have, you had to protect the city, and you had to actually care about the inhabitants, whether or not you know you care about them as people, or what we ended up going on was to just care about them as gameplay elements, but we really wanted from the beginning to um, really inject you into the world, like you say, and so uh, you can have decisions that felt like they had consequence. And a lot of the tile manipulation and the sort of damaging to buildings and, and mountains and stuff like that, all that was uh, really tied to the feeling of wanting there to feel like there's collateral damage and an impact from the battle. Uh, as as you fight right yeah and it it absolutely like it adds just this like i was kind of alluding to just this additional layer to just a typical type of strategy game because um any any of the ones i've played it just feels like just like layers of skin but this one like it it integrates you even more so when you know that mountain topples or you know, you knock an enemy into a building and then you have 100 plus civilian casualties. It just it adds so much more to the game. Um, and it makes you really think about every single move you make, which is um, something I've never experienced before in a strategy game. So it's just it's a really, really cool facet um, to your game. It just yeah, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced in a strategy yeah, it's game. It's so because... a very welcome addition. Yeah, it's it's kind of uh, impressive to me that it could leave such an impact because sort of like you say, uh, you described other games where the characters are sort of placed in there. Visually, that is exactly what we're doing. Like, we're just sort of embracing the fact that our units are essentially like pieces on a chessboard, right? Um, we don't animate them heavily. There's not a lot of interaction visually, uh, meaning like, they don't turn directions or they don't fire in the actual, actual direction. And all these decisions were just purely time. Like, I'm, I'm the only artist of the in-game art. And 
if we were to want to have four-directional facing, that's quadrupling the amount of art that we have to do for each unit. So um, let alone if you had an animating individual attacks, like a punch or something. But um, So all these were very practical decisions to make the game easier to develop. Um, and it's funny because the effect that you are getting, that feeling like they're actually in the city itself, is purely mechanical. It's purely gameplay-related. Like, uh, it's just the fact that there's a consequence to punching, um, rather than what most games try to do, which is rely entirely on the visuals to have you feel like you're in that space. Like, not to bash Hawken or something, but like Hawken or Titanfall 2 or whatever, where they put so much effort into making it look visually correct to you destroying the buildings while you're fighting, and, you know, with your missiles that miss or whatever. Um, but the fact that it has almost no bearing on gameplay whatsoever, or you know, it doesn't impact your decision making at all. It feels like it doesn't really exist when you're a good player. When you're a good player, your goal is to forget anything that doesn't impact the gameplay, right? Like. You're trying to filter out any information that isn't your target, your weapons, your ammo, your health, etc. And so it feels like it doesn't matter. And so that was one thing we were definitely trying to fight, is making that collateral damage actually matter. And it required simplifying the game to a really small, to a very uh, large extent. Right, and that's, that's the crazy thing. It's like, it's such a simple concept in theory, but that simple concept is just it, it takes it takes the game to an, another level and and just like that genre into another level really and um yeah it 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 just was brilliant uh, to me it was and i know awesome. i know some of the other guys on the podcast um the main podcast we do absolutely love that choice um it's something that we talked about for a while you know amongst ourselves so it's yeah it's wonderful so yeah i loved it um awesome yeah this, the second question I had for you, and it's kind of another mechanic-esque question, is where did the idea to send a pilot into an alternate timeline after failure come from? Because that was another really interesting choice that we ended up loving. Yeah, so like most of our decisions, um, almost everything is made uh, based around gameplay is, you know, choices. So. I believe originally the idea for the time travel came from the fact that I didn't really like how in FTL the player's experience was sort of separate from the character's experience in-game. Meaning, you play through the game, you learn stuff, you lose, your guys die, and then magically you start over from the beginning. Meanwhile, you, the player, has more knowledge and has more understanding of the world and mechanics. Um, so I wanted some way to build the player's narrative into the narrative of the, of the game itself. Um, so basically, in Into the Breach, if you, for listeners who don't know, um, when you're playing the game, it's sort of roguelike-ish in nature, where there's permadeath. So when you lose or, or win, you have the option to send one of your pilots back in time to continue the game. Um, and this is largely, like I was saying, to tie each playthrough together into some into one sort of meta narrative of these are people who are 
continually learning and adapting from their failures over time and trying to find better ways to achieve victory in the end, which is exactly what the player is doing. And so you could sort of better commiserate with the guy who lost his buddies, had to go back in time, and had to start over. It's like you feel like a stronger connection rather than just separating each playthrough. Um, mechanically speaking, it was pretty hard to figure out what would be good because you don't want to get send too much stuff back to the beginning of each game because then you would instantly have those feelings of, well, this run is just to get me the stuff to send back to the next run, and that will be the real run. Um, that never feels good to me. So we we actually had it way more complicated early on, and then we just basically simplified it and simplified it until it's just the sending of a single pilot, and a single pilot won't make or break your game. It could have a pretty big impact, but it's not like a deciding factor usually. Um, so that, that's like the beginning of that idea. Originally, we had... We wanted to, or at least I wanted to take some inspiration from stuff like Darkest Dungeons, where um, time travel sort of took its toll on people, uh, and you can get sort of status attributes and and various other things, but complicating the pilots uh, wasn't really necessary when we sort of stepped away from some of the more narrative elements of the game and focused entirely on just this pure, simple combat. Uh, the game had a lot of evolutions over development. We didn't know what we wanted until two years in. So. Mm, I read that, actually. Like, so I read that, basically, you guys had just all these different iterations of what you wanted to do, um, both oh, mainly me mechanically speaking, like for the different things we've talked about so far and it just it continued to evolve and basically like you were saying in the last question you continue to make it simpler and simpler um, yeah, as the gameplay kind of dictated that yeah um i think one of the hardest things to do as a developer is to not get too attached to what you want the game to be and sort of flow and, and find out what the game would be best to be so um, we definitely, I'd say the vast majority of what we do in the long run is cut ideas. It's ideas are a dime a dozen. Like a thousand ideas are great. Um, even bad ideas could be good games. The only thing that matters is how you execute um, and how you actually put all those things together and. And very often, less is more in games. You, you know, Tetris is not a mechanically complex game. <laughs> um, so a lot of the time, yeah, trimming down the fat often actually makes the game way better. That makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. You know, just like trying to figure out what does and doesn't work idea-wise. And then whatever you cut, maybe that didn't work for, like, Maybe is that something, and if it didn't work for this particular game, when you're looking at making a future game, um, is that do you take inspiration from ideas that were cut from a previous game, or is that something where like they're cut, yeah, they're sh they're done? Yeah, I mean, um, basically every little idea is like uh, a tool in your arsenal. 
Um, so if we get into another development cycle making a new game and something that I cut from this game, like I'm still not bitter, but I'm still kind of sad that I wasn't able to jam like Ogre Battle into this game somehow, you know, like multiple squads and stuff like that. So, you know, I will definitely keep that in mind for future games where, you know, certain elements of different games that I enjoy, um, I would basically in my head be like, would this fit, would this connect, would this improve this game? 99% of the time it doesn't, but um, it will definitely be kept in mind. That's um, cool. I do, have a back, I do have a backlog of like game ideas that I was like, uh, I just have to do this sometime. And of course, that grows faster than you can make games, especially when a full-fledged game took us four, 40 years to make. I don't think I have enough time <laughs> in my lifetime. That makes sense. I imagine that, like, this is a terrible analogy, but just, like, trying to delve deep into, like, your Netflix queue. Like, you you always have that desire to, you know, just watch all the movies there, but then you keep adding more and more, and then you're just like, I'm never going to finish this at the end of the day, but yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pretend like I'm going to yeah, finish it, but it never happens. Yeah, the act of making a new game, or even just the, during the time period of development when you're seeing other games or media or anything that inspires you the, the amount of games that you want to make is growing faster than it's possible to create that's why i love it when someone makes an idea that i wanted to make because it's just like i don't have to do it anymore great like someone <laughs> Thank else did you it like, so much take, take off the cue yeah, yeah. that's that's yeah. cool though i mean like that's almost in a way a like it's relieving, I'm sure, but it's also a good problem to have, like having too many ideas rather than having writer's block and having nothing to go off of. Yeah, the it's easy for us to in general start with a like start with a smaller design, meaning like if you try and paint and you just have a white canvas, it's like impossible. It's better to just sort of do something that's slightly dark and it just because if you have unlimited opportunity options, it's like impossible to choose anything. So um, it's definitely, you know, easier to have to sort of restrict what it is that you're going to be doing in a game. For example, like our art style heavily restricts us. Like if we wanted to go 3D, maybe we could figure it out. But honestly, it's like us saying it can only be pixel art and it can only be a small game that we ourselves largely can do to at least prototype. That heavily restricts what our options are in games. <laughs> and that's actually a very useful thing. Um, because some of the ideas I have are very impractical and should not be undertaken. <laughs> and so it's good to... It's just these grandiose to, ideas. To limit yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure everyone uh, has you know, their MMO nonsense. Right, right. Well, that happens. And actually, so... For any any listener who doesn't know this, uh, Justin ended up uh, collaborating slash working with um, another another kind of like I don't know how you'd word it like a consultant I guess it is maybe, maybe that's not the right word like you just collaborated with uh, contractor yeah contractor that is the word I'm looking for thank you um, now I looked his name up and I hope I don't butcher it like I, I tried looking it up exactly Chris Avalon. Uh, Paulina? 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 
Polina. Polina, thank you. Yeah, um, I thought I got that. I've never met her in life. Yeah, so I could be messing up too. I've only been through email and stuff, but yes, Polina. Yeah, she did. Um, she did a lot of work on a bunch of games, but um, for us, she did all the portraits and a lot of the like um, more complicated drawings, like the uh, office scenes when you get to the island, oh, and then cool. I sort of tweaked them and did uh, turned it into sort of pixel art. That's really cool. So was that kind of like a seamless collaboration between you two, or was that more um, like in, like you guys bouncing ideas off each other, or was that just kind of like, hey, this is this is kind of what I want. Um, this is my baby. Can you kind of inject your your artistry into this project? Well, I mean, we try. It's funny. We have um, sort of heavy restrictions on what we want the game to be. We have strong vision of this is what the game is, but within that space, we're super flexible. So it's like we can hand something off to someone and they can have, you know, we gave, let her sort of come up with different, um, all the portraits for the different back the monsters in the game. And, you know, those aren't what I pictured in my head necessarily. And it doesn't matter because it's fine. They're great. Um, but if you like cross some sort of certain line into like implying something a game that we don't, then that's like a no go at all. So it's like when we work with um, con- uh, you know, we collaborate with contractors and stuff like you know, Chris Avalon, Ben and Power Up, or anybody. It's um, we try to give them as much space as possible, but it there definitely is some issues when we have the final say and we have the sort of internal vision of what the game can be. Um, I imagine it could be somewhat hard to work with us and like please us. But in but I mean I love everything that everyone put into this game. I love when they can put a little bit of themselves in the game as well. Like the soundtrack evolved over time. Um, you know, Chris Chris's writing sort of was and the, the tone of the game was very much his own invention, even if we sort of set the initial boundaries. Um, yeah, we like we like letting people sort of express themselves and have it come out in interesting ways. At the same time, that we have way too much emotional investment in the game, and and can probably uh, you know have some hard lines that we don't want to cross yeah yeah that's yeah i the the music is done beautifully the the scenes that uh polina did were awesome yeah like it just it added so much context and layers to it and like like you're saying it's they can inject kind of like their own their own feeling into the game and in a way it kind of like something that like you know you and uh matt had been working on this for so long that like these people can kind of come in and give it a different perspective that maybe you haven't seen exactly because you're sitting there staring at this game every day working on it so hard that like they just add a different layer to it that in itself it kind of yeah uh yeah definitely and also just um sort of skill set wise matt and i aren't really great storytellers you know there's a reason why we're making very gameplay heavy um types of games mechanics based games we don't you know we're not going to make a narrative game i don't think it would be very good 
Um, so when we can sort of leverage the other people to make a better, as much of a better setting and tone and atmosphere as possible and better characters, we will definitely appreciate their help. Um, it's, it's funny because you could do so much more. Like we could have hired more artists and we could have had like tons of scenes of victory and whatever. And honestly, in part, um, you know, it just shows our priorities. Like I would rather spend every focused moment on improving the gameplay um, rather than improving the visuals or whatever. Um, but there has to be at least a minimum of like good visuals and tone and audio. Not, not that we're doing the peak minimum, but just like, it's this difficult balance between we're not particularly great at like, you know, hiring an art team to have five guys do, you know, tons of different stuff. It's just, that's not where our skill set lies, which is why we haven't like grown as a studio. But that's cool though, that like basically you guys know where your strengths lie and you know where your strengths aren't and you, you, you favor those strengths so well. And it's, it's so weird that, that um like the the art style for me i love retro games so uh, you know old looking games new looking games it all looks great to me and you know there are some people out there who are more graphic driven and graphic heavy and even that like even those type of people were praising this game just like how beautiful it is and i i think that's that says a lot that like you know you don't always need this maximal approach to your visuals for a game to be beautiful or good it just it it's all about how you integrate those things yeah yeah i i won't lie i was kind of surprised at the positivity towards the aesthetic in the game um and the visuals like i thought it was fine right i think it's functional um and then people were saying it was very you know certain groups were saying it's gorgeous or whatever and um I mean, it's great to hear, but uh, I was just frankly kind of surprised because it is so minimal. Like, the mechs, there is an idle animation. That's the only animation they have. Yeah. They have there's no there's no other angle that you view them at. We don't even have... We, we're going to have, like, blueprint art so you can get a better feel of what they look like when they're large and we didn't do that. But, you know, the, I guess the reason why people come away from this game thinking it looks good visually, if I can guess, is that it's very internally consistent. Like, everything it's doing, it's not doing a lot, but what it's doing, it's consistently good, and it's not, for example, if I added, like, one punch animation, like where the main mech was punching, now you have to have everybody have an attack animation, and they all have to be equal fidelity, and they all have to convey what they're doing. And so the expectation grows really high. I feel like we set incredibly low expectation for what the art is. And then when you have something like the mountain explode and it looks like rocks are flying, then it feels great. Um, but this is only a guess. I, I'm not certain exactly why. Yeah, well, I, I think that's part of it. Like, like, we, like we talked about at the beginning, that integration level, it really... It really it impacts the environment and you go play something and this is just one, one example I have off the top of my head, like a fire emblem game, which um, 
it just feels like those characters are there and it doesn't feel like anything you do in that battle impacts the environment whatsoever you know and it's yeah it just a lot a lot of things you're talking about just like the the animations you know even though they're here and there like the idle animations or the rocks blowing up it just when you first play the game it's it's so unexpected like especially in this type of genre and then the fact that like for me i never got used to seeing those like it was always a pleasure to see those kind of little animations pop off the screen and yeah it i I think that's a big part of it and you know you expect with this kind of game it just to be a very stagnant view of something but it's it's always changing you know whether it's a train just simply moving up rail like moving up the rails or you know the little conveyor belts on the toxic island and the the vec moving along or your mechs moving along all that stuff yeah it just it's it's simple but it works so well and it's to me it's beautiful Thanks, man. That's awesome. Yeah, maybe it's like what you're saying is, which could be tied to the whole like the pacing of the game. Like a lot of the time is spent thinking and analyzing, and then when you actually ed- execute, that's when any sort of um, animations and things happen. Like the resulting effect of it. You know, you don't want to watch the buildings blow up, so you don't try. You try to avoid it as much as possible. But then, in those few times that you're like. Uh, I didn't think about that, and the crack come crashing down. It's um, it, it is more impactful just from the sort of build up to that moment. Maybe yes, yes, I I would agree with that. To be honest with you, um, I yeah, I love I just love the animation in this game. It's great. Um, awesome. <laughs> so one of the main themes that you guys kind of really infused in this game, as we're talking about, it, is collateral damage whether you are avoiding it or you're preventing it, um, it's, it's prominent in the game. So was that a cognizant choice from the beginning, or did it kind of evolve from you guys working on more of the mechanics and not whatnot with this game? Um, yeah, the, the feeling of preventing collateral damage, the feeling that you had to make a choice sometimes to step in front of a, a shot and take the hit with one of your guys and have them die. That was like the first thing that this game started with. That was that was before we knew what it would look like. Um, we, before we knew if it was turn based, any of that um, was that we. So throughout the entirety of development, we were all constantly checking and going back to see is this fulfilling that primary goal of giving you tough choices in collateral damage manner. Um, early on, even we didn't have the sort of predicted targeting of enemies. Um, and I feel like that was the biggest, one of the biggest like turning points for figuring out what the game was. Um, because, you know, if you have a traditional tactics game where you take turns, it's sort of emulating a chess game or something where you have an opponent that is thinking and then chooses things and acts. Um, instead of that, if, if for those people who don't know, in this game, um, every enemy, their intentions are shown on the screen. Um, and then you act, then it's your turn, and you can react to, to what they're going to do. And so you can use the enemy's attacks against them, um, stuff like that. And that started pretty early in just one enemy, one one specific enemy, this, this scorpion-like guy. 
uh, existed pretty early. And then we were like, why don't we just see what it's like to do this with any with every enemy? And then when we started playing with it, we were kind of surprised that we had never seen it in a game before. Um, this sort of, yeah, this sort of like um, input, heavy input randomness, but no output randomness. Meaning like you don't choose an action and then there's a possibility of something different happening. Um, this type of gameplay and strategy game, we hadn't, I couldn't think of anything at least other than some of our inspirations like Hoplite or something. Um, we didn't see, so, so that was an early direction that that plus the um, desire for collateral damage to matter was some of the core principles as the game yeah. evolved. Yeah, it, it feels like, and this is one of the other major things, um, like he, like Justin is saying for the listeners, it, there's nothing like this in strategy games. And it, I would personally love to see this kind of, uh, this kind of mechanic be, become the standard of, of strategy games, or at least they're a whole different branch, like a sub, uh, a, a sub genre of strategy games where this occurs and like this, like they all be inspired by this because it was such a welcome mechanic where it is like you're saying it's not the typical chess chess gameplay it there's so it adds to like how much more is that really at stake when you see like you move your three pilots and then you see everything that the vex going to do like you may have three enemies on the screen you may have seven enemies and you you feel the direness of that situation and just it really, really causes you to think about sh- strategy games in a whole new way. Because in a typical strategy game, you're just you're taking your enemies and you're just going and you're just button heads and you're figuring out positioning. But this one, positioning is so much more important because there there may be matches where you don't kill a single enemy. You're just preventing damage, and it's all about how each person plays the game differently. So yeah, it just it caused me to think in ways I have never thought in a strategy game before, like just different ways. And it was so welcome. Yeah. A lot of sort of like the higher level decision-making and creating traditional strategy games, they're sort of emulating chess, like, you know, Starcraft even. Um, and what I mean by that is that you have an opponent that is, you know, it's pretending to be a human and your goal is to, um, come to a better strategy than they are, or at least counter their strategy to beat the AI. Um, but meanwhile, what is the fun of that game? That fun is when the AI is close enough level that you feel like it's a challenge and you feel like you have to think about what they're doing, but not and not way better than you to just destroy you because that's generally not fun. And also way not just way easy because there's no point whatsoever. So it's this weird middle ground of trying to adapt to every person's playing style and every person's skill level to be able to uh, create a fake human that is fun to play against. A lot of developers don't even try to make a real proper human. They they fudge a lot of the numbers to basically make it as fun as possible. And just like you know maybe. You know, even with StarCraft example, I think the the AIs like can sometimes like get more money or whatever, more you know, whatever they're called, uh, um, 
and the player if it's on hard difficulty or something. So there's a lot of number fudging to make it um, just to find a way to be fun. With this specific, with our specific approach to strategy games, um, we want it to be anytime that that something bad happens, you feel like it's your fault. Yeah, <laughs> like that. That was a high goal: is to make you feel bad if you mess up. And I don't think it would be good to entirely, you know, every strategy game to sort of adopt this design mentality. I do think. Um, there's, you know, room for the other sort of just more straight fun, I guess, uh, sort of type of game. Whereas this is a sort of can be kind of heavy and really on the player. And certain people just don't like that. There's a lot. I mean, we've gotten a lot of comments. Even if you look on Steam or whatever, a negative review will be like, it's too deterministic. It needs some sort of randomness. And I'm, I'm like, that was like the point of the game, this time to be as deterministic as possible. I mean, it's fine. You don't have to like right. the game, and it's clearly not for you. But it's just funny because, like, um, that was, like, specifically what we were trying to do. Um, so I, it's not for everybody, probably. But uh, for those of us who really like to feel like uh, the curtain is pulled back and there's no, like, things being hidden from you as much as possible, and your own mistakes, um, you have to deal with them. Uh, those types of people would like this. Yeah, and more. I mean, to kind of go off your point, that's that's one thing I really like about this game is that you you do have to live with your your choices at the end of the day. There's no, like, critical hits that where you feel like, well, that was cheap. I Like, how am I supposed to account for that? It was like, I didn't think of this strategy well enough. That's on me. Um, if I lose all my pilots this time around, I'm going to learn and I'm going to go forward next time and make sure that I consider this strategy in the future. Yeah. The funny thing is there's two or three different types of uh, mechanics we had to put in the game that sort of break that rule. Um, but we always break the rule in the favor of the player. So, for example, you have the ability to undo actions in each battle once. Um, and the reason... The reason for that was there's a lot of times when players have uh, make a mistake uh, or they just don't know the mechanics well enough. Like the first time you punch an enemy and he hits a building behind him because he's sliding backwards. Like the first time that happens, I don't want to punish the player for not knowing how it works. Um, I want to punish the player for not like having a good decision-making process, um, I guess. So... So if you if you're like oh I didn't know how that worked and then something and then you lose the game that's not fun you feel like the game's cheating you like it's hiding stuff from you and then punishing you when so so we added the undo button um, and that was like a weird learning process for us at least for me because um, if you had unlimited reset turns um, the player would basically have choice paralysis they would only ever continue if they figured it out perfectly um and so i thought that when you just have one if you turn it into a resource and you just have one reset i thought that the player would um have the one turn where they feel like oh that was my bad thanks game for not ruining the game just because i misclicked or whatever i thought that as soon as you used it it would revert back to screw you game like you were hiding stuff from me but instead what happens is 
when players use the first one and then make a second mistake, um, and they can't reset the turn, they basically go back to blaming themselves because they use that resource. Um, and like, oh, if I only didn't make the, the, the first mistake, then I would have this to use um, for the second mistake. And I found that super interesting. But basically, we, it totally took the blame off the game's shoulders to just have it be a resource that the player can feel guilty about using. Like, maybe you can, you know, save one building damage. Should I use this? Should I not? And then if you use it and then you need it to save two building damage, you feel shitty about yourself rather than pissed off at the game for making an un unwinnable situation or whatever. So I, I really um, was surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. It, I can tell you as, as a player, there were times where I was like, thank God this undo button is here because I made just the worst mistake I could have possibly made. And then there were times where I used it. I made another mistake and I'm like, well, that's on me at this point. You know, like, you know, the developers gave me every opportunity to yeah. rectify my mistake. And I, uh, <laughs> that's on me at the end of the day. That's kind of, that's, it, worked, uh, it worked out nicely. The other, the other big, like, thing that we sort of fudge the numbers you say there's no crits but there is the building resist um and i mean i don't have to go in too much but basically we found that if you include any sort of randomness um if you make it in the player's favor then it never yes. bothers <laughs> um sim similar to you know if this was like uh 60 chance to hit and then 40 40 chance to miss that feels way worse than it's going to hit, but maybe it's going to not do damage uh, and maybe it'll be okay because you're basically setting up the player to feel like it's guaranteed loss and then in, in the clutches of defeat, victory is given to them. That feels great, but in the, if you think that you're going to win and then you have that taken away from you, i.e. your 99% chance to hit and then you, have, and you miss, um, that is like 10 times more devastating. Um, also, just on a psychological level, like all those studies basically saying how we're set up as humans to be more receptive and remembering of failure and loss and negative things than we are to feel positive about good things. So, in general, it's like if you have weird randomness that is helping the player, they'll forget about the fact that it was due to luck more easily than if they lost I, luck. Yeah, that, that random building element of like when it's it can be like the damage can be resisted was the first time i encountered that i was like whoa this is like, i didn't think anything <laughs> like like i didn't even realize that that's something that was missing from these type of games is like the random element in my favor because th these games like you're saying like a, a, a missed hit is so common i think in a lot of strategy games and you you're you're exactly right it it feels like, like, why? Why did this happen to me? And then, whereas the reversal of that is a positive random element in your favor, and it's like, it's like when, like when your parents forgot about that one Christmas present that they hid away so you didn't find it, and they're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I forgot about this. Here's that extra present. Yeah. And it's, it's, like, it's similar to that feeling where you're just like, oh, wow, I was not expecting this. This is very pleasant. Yeah, like if you watch uh, Hearthstone streamers um, or something like that, you'll see people basically 
like you can see right after one another, like something bad happens as luck based, and it's like, oh, why am I never lucky? And then they get, then something good happens. You're like, oh, that's nice. It's like the the disproportionate amount for like of how how it impacts your feeling. The negative luck things are just so much stronger, and it's so much easier to forget when you can, you know, even if you're fifty fifty lucky. Um, it will feel like you're seventy percent unlucky. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was it was a great mechanic. And one of the one of the other things I actually wanted to talk about with you is in a lot of strategy games, some of the length of the battles is just can be really excruciating. To be honest with you, not in, not in this game because like sometimes in those games you're spending a lot of time just kind of like positioning your units in in a way to correctly advance your troops to attack and what i what i appreciated about this game is the faster pace of each battle you aren't spending loads of time just planning out where each attack is going to happen you have what's in front of you and it comes at you really quickly so you, you have to adapt why was why was that approach taken in this game because it's it's wonderful i love how you can just jump in play a quick game and be out yeah i mean it's for the reason that you described basically um you know you play XCOM, you play fire emblem in our opinion the least fun part is the first few turns the last few turns it's just the the wind up to i need to get ready to fight um like in fire emblem is exactly the same every single time you you lead it so that maybe one guy is close enough for one enemy to hit, and then you all gang up and finish them off one by one. It's like there's no when when there's no thought process involved because you basically solve what it is that you need to do and you do it every single time. Uh, it's not fun to me, at least. Um, so similarly, at the end of battle, when you just sort of your victory is guaranteed and you're just mopping up the last few guys, it's just it feels like a chore. Um, and so, very consciously, we we tried to just cut those two parts out to make the first turn from the first battle have interesting decisions was a goal. Um, and the way we ended up trying to emphasize that was by having the automated victory on a timer instead of like a unit kill count or something like that, um, and to have the map size be incredibly small. Um, that's generally how we how we try to get that feeling of each turn yeah. battling. Yeah, no, it it was so much appreciated because like what you're talking about, um, one of my favorite game series was actually the Shining Force series for the Sega Genesis, which took a lot of inspiration um, from Fire okay. Emblem. And I, it was earlier this year, I just decided, you know, I'm going to play this game on really hard. And I went into the first battle, and a lot of it was moving my enemies just back and back and back. And I spent a good 15 minutes just positioning my troops so I could attack my enemies without dying. And when I did that, I realized how, like, really flawed a lot of strategy games are, like what you're talking about. Like, the first few and the first and the last few turns are really just setting everything up or cleaning up enemies. And it's it gets very laborious and tedious and... Yeah, I just love the fast-paced nature of this game. It's like you're in, you're out. Every move has a purpose, and you're good to go. 
Yeah, I mean, I could see the appeal in those sorts of games, but in general, yeah, it doesn't... It's not something I enjoy so much that, like... You know, the first few times that you could do that setup where you're just like, oh, this feels really good, I've successfully pulled off a really hard thing to do, feels great, but when you do it a hundred times, then it totally loses its appeal. Um, yeah, but I mean... Those those games sort of had a bit more of a grindy nature um, back in the day as well. They so. did, yeah. And I'm like you're saying, they have their place. They have their place, but it's it's nice to see that in a di- like that element being done away with in a different game. And Into the Breach does it so well. So it was definitely a, awesome. it was a good change. Another. So another really good thing that Into the Breach does that we've talked about already a ton is the consequences of your actions, whether it's like letting a building crumble with a bunch of people in it to save the the, ma- the vast majority of other buildings, um, not completing a challenge in order to, you know, save more people. Because um, in, in the game, there are more challenge. There are some like additional challenges to give you like more to work for. Or having even like one of your three main pilots die in order to complete whatever the task is at hand. So my question was, I was I was trying to mull this over, like think, you know, hypothetically, were there any other consequences that you kind of considered implementing into the game, but were kind of ultimately scrapped? Or was this the direction you guys had from the inception of the game? Um, let's see. So you know the 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 reason why these decisions exist is because we want the player to basically not go on autopilot. We want to have, depending on the current situation, we want the player to think it's in my best interest to do something that's normally not in my best interest. So that's like you know what we're aiming for. So that would maybe include attacking a building to be able to to, you know, do something or attacking your own unit to push them a little bit further, but meanwhile they take damage. Um, we want it always to feel like everything is on the table. Like, um, in terms of mechanics that we cut or whatever, um, like, like I said, there was, there was an idea of having, like, pilots be more consistent and have more character and... Frankly, this was when we had FTL like text events and stuff like that, where you have different options based on the, the gear you have or whatever. Um, so I, I did want to have consequences like, you know, getting injured or getting, you know, you attack a building with a pilot, and if depending on that pilot's personality, um, you could have them be scarred or suddenly become really fatalistic or whatever, and that would have some sort of impact on the text choices and stuff like that. But all of that was dropped entirely. Um, that's trying to think what else. That's really interesting. That would have added just like even even a further layer to kind of like the like who you're playing with in the narrative. Yeah, I, earlier the game was it was basically two games. It was the combat and then the sort of city management um sort of not city building but like kind of ex-commy you're trying to manage and protect a, a thing over as it grows and as your guys improve and so that would include 
stuff like, you know, random events that would happen FTL style, and you would have to make decisions based, or like you could send your pilots on an away mission, and then they would succeed or fail or whatever, in whatever time limit you gave them. And so it was a very different game when we were considering this. Uh, in the end, we decided, let's just make one game that's good and try and make two games and have them be half bad. Um, so we basically scrapped any sort of meta uh, gameplay other than just progressing oh, between well, them. That makes sense at the end of the day. I mean, like you're saying, you want... You sound like a little bit of a perfectionist, so it sounds like you made the right choice at the end of the day. And it, it turned out to be a wonderful yeah. end result. Yeah, it's... it's. Um, I mean, these games, it could be anything as you develop. Like, it could change the shifts sometimes. But um, I, I definitely, at least personally, like this direction of just pure gameplay focus. It's just a bunch of battles. Um, it's, it's, even if it doesn't have great, like, meta-narrative stuff. It's yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's it's funny that kind of, like, we're mentioning that because I actually just recently read an article by uh, Ben Prunty about how much thought and effort went into just, like, the style of music and the implementation of it, for example. So for you and uh, Matt, what was the concept that you guys put the most effort into to make sure that it just came out as perfect as it could be? Like, it was, it had to be perfect. Uh, the UI. The UI was maybe um, half of the work of the game, I'd say. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it, but the amount of effort that goes into making the UI not overbearing is insane. It took so much time. A constant iteration. Yeah, it, it was so... It was Basically, the problem is we have tons and tons of information given at any given time. You need to be able to access it all. We, we want you to, at a glance, be able to know what's happening. We don't want to have any nested sub-menus of, like, going into lists and then looking up an enemy ability or whatever. No, you need to be able to access that immediately and easily and cleanly. Um, man, it was a pain in the ass. It was just... <laughs> it was, I want to make a game that has no UI, but um, yeah, it was that. That was the ever-present, constant thing. Anytime we had a new mechanic, it's like, can this be shown with the UI? If not, cut it. Um, and similarly, the UI made heavy um, made heavy demands on what we could or couldn't do. With the UI. I think one of the big things that made it feel like it was doable was. Um, the animated tooltips. So we tried so many ways to like explain what the hell a weapon does. You know, artillery attack that flies over an enemy leaves a rock if it leaves if it lands on an empty square. Otherwise, does two damage and pushes two tiles to the left. Or it's just like garbage, right? Like, and meanwhile, if you just see it, it's almost instantly understandable for anyone who gets the basic mechanics of the game. So that that whole animated tooltip thing was like a breakthrough, um, and I don't know if we would have been able to pull off the complexity that we yeah. had in the game without it. Yeah, it it was it was awesome. Like just being able, to, for example, to hover hover over an enemy, and then for for it to be able to tell you kind of what it does. Like it can move this far, it can do this much amount of damage. If you're highlighting one of like the uh, little scion like creatures that. Um, like give the other Vex Ooh, special abilities. Yeah. And like you're saying, the animation to see 
what it does, whether it's with the weapons or the enemies, it just, it helps so much. Like, reading it is one thing. Reading it and then seeing how that goes into effect makes it so much more cohesive and easy to understand. Yeah, your brain just can, it just, interpreting words and figuring out what you mean is like a heavy taxing on the brain, I'd say. Yes. Um, especially when it's a complicated little mechanic. But just seeing it is just like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's like, for me, I, I I relate it to like being back in math class and getting one of those word problems and like, I can't, I can't visualize this, you know, like it's so difficult, but then you, but then you see, you see like a picture of what exactly you're supposed to be doing. Like if you're doing some type of geometric type of thing, you see that figure there with the, with the word text and you're like, okay, this makes a little bit more sense. And that's kind of how I viewed this is like, I could be reading that text and trying to figure it out, but seeing it, it makes, it may, like I said, it makes it clear, makes it easy. And yeah, I, that makes, that makes a lot of sense now that the UI would have been the thing to, you know, perfect. Yeah. It's, um, it was a heavy restriction on what we could or couldn't do with the gameplay. You know, that's, that's the reason why enemies and the player can primarily attack in straight lines only, um, was because it just made it easier at a glance to know what the enemies were doing um like if they can act if they can attack in a sort of diamond and e three tile ways radius or whatever thing it's way harder to sort of parse the visual information of what was going on and I don't think we did a perfect job of course, but um that was it was definitely um definitely the hardest aspect of the game that I makes sense that makes a ton of sense um my my next question for you is. The the inspiration um, that you and Matt had for the post-apocalyptic feel, did that come from anything specific like uh, movies or some sort of media? Or was that like something prompted by like climate change, which is, you know, obviously a problem the, the world is faced with? What, what was the specific inspiration for that post-apocalyptic feel? Oh, yes. the setting and stuff? Um, well, so... It's kind of, once again, restricted by the gameplay, at least. We, we knew we wanted to have a dire-feeling situation that it feels like you can lose. So that sort of sets the tone immediately for, um, you know, it's a, uh, a very dangerous situation and, and, you know, the world's going to be doomed without your help. Like, that's just a gameplay-related thing. The... You know, the, the the island structure and the fact that everything was corporate, the little sort of corporate islands, um, that is half um, half based on just, like, yeah, the right, and half based on its gameplay uh, helpful to, to make you feel like the world is smaller um, than having a giant world. Because otherwise, if you're just a mech, like, that's kind of weird because, like, you can defend the whole world just to, like, a couple guys. Um, so it's another practical decision. The the sort of actual setting of these corporations that um, basically it's like the the standards uh, cyberpunk corporate uh, nations have dissolved. Everything's uh, run by corporations effectively, but similar to how FTL, we just sort of took all the tropes that you're used to and put it in the game so you don't have to learn a lot. We don't have to give you a lexicon for doing the game. It's like, yeah, you get it. It's the standard stuff. But then slightly tweak it 
So like at least feels a little bit different. Similarly with this, like the corporations, if they they work fine, the government, the world was fine. Other than these giant monsters, like um, yeah, it's just a different way to run things, and things aren't great. But they didn't really have any more wars and stuff like that. And so I'm, we weren't trying to make some sort of like grandiose statement about where the world will go. It was more just like let's take a setting and tropes that you're used to and then slightly tweak it so that it feels a little bit different and, and, and uncertain. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I've always been kind of partial to post-apocalyptic things. Like, I love zombies and I love hmm. things like Fallout or the Book of Eli. So it was really interesting to to see it in this game and especially in a strategy game type of... Um, that's where the setting ended up being for a strategy game. It was, sure, it was yeah. very different. It was cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess like the original like Fallouts, but like that's a proper post-apocalyptic strategy going on. But yeah, the, the setting, um, for us, it's very much about just creating a cohesive world rather than telling a specific story within the game. It's more about having a universe that feels like it makes sense with FTL. Um, we want the story to be what the player's actions are um, and you know the results of that rather than something that we're dictating. So it's a higher priority to just um, have the world feel cohesive and, and feel like it makes internal sense, at least. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it... Yeah, it worked well. Like with everything that was going on, you're, you know, you have these giant creatures destroying buildings. Post apocalyptic feel made sense for that. So yeah. I liked it. It was great. Awesome. Um, so, are there any secrets in the game that have yet to be uncovered by players, or uh, are they, those have all been kind of discovered at this point? Uh, I think they've all, I think like the actual secret secrets, we didn't have that much secret secrets in the game. I, everyone, that's, as far as I can tell, it's all, yeah, there's nothing else other than some sort of like thematic stuff, maybe like some of Chris's writing, like implying certain things about people's backgrounds. I haven't at least seen discussed online, um, but we didn't, we didn't go too heavy in that direction. That's interesting. So like, Maybe maybe each character's background has a little bit more to it than people have looked into at this point. Yeah, and and not, I'm not not blaming them. It's kind of hard to to glean backstory from just a, a random little bark every once in a while. But um, but yeah, I mean Chris spent a while basically figuring out backstories and stuff. And similar to like FTL, we don't tell you that there was some galactic war that happened in between these races and this resulted in this. But we want to at least make it feel like um, those characters went through something that caused them to have these certain viewpoints. So so they, you can sort of glean information um, that at least implies there's more going on than you know. And I feel like that was our high, highest priority with um, with the sort of storytelling is basically um, 
make people feel like it's actually a world that's running without you being there. Um, and that that's usually done by not telling the player everything, as far as I can tell. <laughs> that's, and, yeah, that's cool, I'm though. Like, I, I, I love that each pilot has their own story. It has That's something we kind of didn't really touch on. Each pilot has their own ability. And as... And that's one thing you kind of want to consider, too, when you're sending pilots back or you're deciding what pilots you want to use. But the, the, the pilots having their own story was awesome. And it it almost like feels like when you get a unique one-of-a-kind whatever it is, whether it's like a trading card type of thing or whatever, it's like you get this character that no one else has. And you can – my friend – like the guys and I from the podcast did this, we would compare like, Oh, who do you have? Who are you using? Who's your favorite character? Because like, maybe we've encountered the same ones. Maybe we haven't. And if we haven't, we have a rare one of a kind guy. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fun. I, I feel like the game is small enough though, that like, that will only last so long until everybody has everything. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. We, but, um, but that does, that's a fun angle to have. Because they do feel like sort of like you're coming across uh, a random loot box thing that has a chance of you know, finding something cool or whatever when you get those time cards. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was playing this game, <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit this. I was heavily addicted to this game for a month straight. I just, I couldn't stop thinking about the game. I'd be at work and I'd be like, Man, I wish I could just like take a quick ten minutes and go play this game um, on my phone. Is, are, are there any plans in the future to make it a mobile game, or will it stay strictly to PC and Mac? Um, and... I I would hope that we get it on the iPad. I think it'd be very good on iPad. I don't think it would work on phones just for size reasons, just uh, the UI related reasons. Um, uh, like our, I don't know. If it fit, it would be so tiny, and it would be so so much information would have to be hidden from you or nested. It's just like I was saying, all the stuff that we were trying to avoid to do, uh, we'd probably have to do to get on the phone. So I don't think we would we would try or attempt it. That makes sense. But I that makes sense. I, when when that Fire Emblem mobile game came out, I was super stoked. I was like, oh man, I'm so excited to play strategy game yeah. on my phone and then it just ended up being the super watered down version of a strategy game and yeah. it was it's not just fun. a collection game. Yeah. yeah yeah it was not it's a fun. good collection game yes yes game. <laughs> i guess um, i should probably get going pretty okay. soon do you okay. have any final yeah, I, sort of wrap up your question yeah yeah i have actually just one last question for you so that's perfect, yeah, perfect. so looking back if you could make one change or one addition to into the breach what would it be and why? Uh huh. Um, hmm. One change. I can't. I can't think of anything offhand that I greatly regret. Um. I there's things that I feel like we could have done better. Like the final boss was basically our response to what we thought worked and didn't work with FTL and tried to find a new. And I think it works, but I, I don't think it leads to the most satisfying conclusion for people. 
So maybe I would try and figure out some way to do that better. But again, I still don't know what would be a better solution than that. So I'm not sure if that's a good response. I, I think, you know, the thing that I want, want to add or whatever would just be way more content. Um, and I just find that to be personally just the most fun uh, thing to do is to just uh, make new mechanics and, and weapons and stuff like that. And I don't regret launching it with what it was, but um, someday I hope to, to have some more content. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's just, our fans are so, so gracious with us. They realize that we're a very small studio and we sort of take our time with things. And even this, like, Mac and Linux port is taking longer than we were hoping. But, um, but, uh, yeah, I'm appreciative of the fact that they realize how long this can take. But we're also not like the speediest of developers, so yeah. So we'll just keep trucking. No, that that's that's cool. I I love that you. I mean, like you're always hungry for more, but you're at the end of the day satisfied with what you made because I think the end product is wonderful. I think it'd be cool to have like one or like in the future if you guys end up working on it, like throwing on some more islands with just some more. Mm. You know, that would be great. I, I, eventually. Yeah. It's true. That is what I, we were aiming to have, like um, six in the launch game, and then basically you have an option of where to go, and so each game you're not throwing at the same island for whatever reason. But uh, who knows? Maybe some. Okay, that's fair. Well, Justin, since this is the inter- end of the interview, I want to thank you so much um, for taking the time to just you know let me pick your brain for the past hour, fifteen minutes. Um, if you, if you want, like, I don't, (laughs) yeah, you're welcome, man. Um, if you want to, you know, give the listener just, I don't know if you're interested, just like a brief, brief glimpse of what you're working on right now or what's in the works, please feel free to, to like give the listener a glimpse. Um, yeah, we're, we're, uh, so we're trying to focus on, um, we're trying to focus on getting the back and limits build out as well as a couple um a couple things that I can't talk about uh, small stuff because um in part I mean like the way we are as developers like we would rather if we're not certain it's going to exist 100% we would rather say nothing to never have people sort of be like oh I can't wait and then find out that we changed it because like I was saying we we sort of change things on a whim so um yeah we're just know that we're working hard and hopefully cool stuff will come out of it um even if it takes some time uh and yeah you can you know follow our twitter not that we use it that much but at subset games and uh anything that happens will be there even if it's rare um yeah and also i don't know when this will go live but you know for the big summer sale, both games are on, um, you know, FTL is like 75% off, 80% off on iPad, and the Into the Breach is on sale as well for 20 I think, yeah. 20% off. I'm looking at making this, uh, 
you know, just for you and the listener, I'm looking at making this live on Wednesday. I'll be editing the audio um, over the next day or two. And then, yeah, and for the listener, so you know, you can, like like Justin just said, you can get it on Steam. It's on the Steam sale right now. You can get it at uh, GOG.com. And I also saw it on the Humble Bundle site as well. So those are three places you can get both um, Into the Breach and FTL, which are both great games. Our website is uh, Subset Games. And that's next to all that. Subset Games. And yeah, Subset Games as well. Yes. Yes. So cool. Awesome. Well, Justin, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you to the listener. Um, I appreciate you know t- you tuning in every month to check out this podcast and uh, take it easy. <laughs>